Hello and welcome to Creative Conversations, a podcast from the China Australia Writing Centre. I'm Liz Bursky. The centre is a research and creative partnership between Curtin University in Perth and Fudan University in Shanghai. Creative Conversations features writers, academics, and artists discussing writing across cultures, with a particular focus on the promotion of Chinese writing in Australia and Australian writing in China. It provides a forum for the exchange of ideas and the development of cross-cultural understanding and relationships through research and creative projects. The four episodes in this series were recorded in October 2017 at Creative Conversations. Looking forward, looking back. This public event was held at the Esplanade Hotel in Fremantle, Western Australia. Over the course of the day, four panels discussed problems of positioning, distance, and perspective in relation to the past and the future. Proceedings on the day were recorded by David Limay from ABC Radio National. Presented by Mary Fayton, Episode Three, Childhood and Youth, brings together three authors who write for and about children: Cleverman creator Ryan Griffin, speculative fiction author Shah Jah, and young adult novelist Diane Tuchel. They discuss writing from the perspective of the child, giving child protagonists the seriousness they deserve, and young audiences the respect that is their right. What this means from an indigenous perspective, and how trauma can be used as the doorway to empathy. And the idea that the best writers of young adult fiction are often those that never recover from childhood. Thanks for joining us again this afternoon, everyone.、Um, uh, we are talking about childhood and youth, and about writing about it, and writing for readers in that category as well.、Um, so, introducing the panel, Diane Tuchel、uh, is a Fremantle-based young adult author. Her debut novel, Creepy and Maud, was shortlisted for the Children's Book Council of Australia's Book of the Year Award in 2013. Uh, since then, she's published *A Small Madness* and *Forgetting Foster*, and is working on a fourth novel.、Um, Diane has also worked as a fry cook, a nightclub singer, a housekeeper, a bookseller, and a manager of a construction company. And all of these things have proven very useful <laughs> as a writer. Say so. Welcome, <laughs> Diane. <laughs>、um, and then we have Shaja.、Uh, as I mentioned, <laughs> sorry. Again. <laughs>、uh, yes, and I'm going to say exactly the same thing.、Um, Shaja is an acclaimed science fiction writer. Writer from China, where the sci-fi genre has become a lot more popular since the 90s, she's won China's most prestigious science fiction writing award, the Galaxy Award, several times, as well as many other accolades. Shaja is an associate professor of Chinese literature at Jian Jiaotong University. And Ryan Griffin.、Uh, Ryan created and co-produced both seasons of the television series Clever Man.、Uh, the series had its premiere at the Berlin Film Festival and has been screened on ABC TV, the BBC, and Sundance TV in the U.S. Clever Man was originally a concept for children,、uh, and is now a comic through WA's iconic publishing house Gestalt.、Um, Ryan wants to tell similar stories to those he was drawn to growing up. Please welcome the panel. I, 
I want to make the distinction in this conversation about the two, two main elements of this, one about a writing about children and one writing for children. Uh, and I was interested to draw on um, a theme that came up in the last panel, which was about our kind of the double standard of our memories of childhood and you know, what, what we think they were and what they actually were. Um, and so I, I want to ask you first, Shajar, you like to write from the perspective of the young person and you've done that repeatedly. Um, uh, so tell me what it is that inspires you about writing from that perspective. Yeah, I think, uh, uh, I think it's, it has a deeply uh, relationship between my early experience of my, uh, of my process of the growing. Because I, when I was very young, about maybe just three or four years old, I became uh, like a natural storyteller. And uh, I always follow, uh, followed my parents and other adults to tell stories to them. Some uh, from other stories I've heard. And uh, the problem is that's, that was uh, horri horrible because I always, uh, try to try try tries to uh, tried to making up those stories when I was t t uh, telling the story, so the story never ends. <laughs> so the parents some, sometimes feel so scared of me, <laughs> and they just want to give me other things to do and stop me from telling a story. And then uh, I, I have to say uh, I'm, I was very lucky uh, to find a very good close friend who has the same habit, and we. The, the little girl, uh, she's name, her name is Qing, uh, Yang Qing. She always collaborates with me, and uh, we just uh, we like to enjoy the time all together and uh, tell story to each other. And uh, uh, then we collaborate to create uh, our our first story in our life and published at the age of eight. <laughs> it's the first story I published in my life, and uh, I think uh, sometimes when I uh, when I recall about this experience, I think maybe such uh, very precious experience influenced my writing uh, in all my life. And uh, uh, sometimes uh, I still remember that uh, once when I uh, read about uh, my diary, uh, there was a sentence, maybe just a, a, a diary uh, in the elementary school, there was a sentence that I will never forget uh, all, of, all of these feelings of being a child. <laughs> I don't want to forget it. If one day in the future I become a very... Uh, 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 a boring adult, I need to reread this diary and uh, recollect this feeling. So I think maybe that's why I always choose to tell a story from the perspective of the children, because I think children have some many precious qualities like curiosity, uh, passion, and uh, like courage to explore new things, to know, uh, to, to curious about new things, and which can inspire me to, to try to capture that feeling to tell a more and more touching stories about the future, maybe. Um, Ryan, I mentioned in the introduction that you originally uh, developed the idea of Clever Man for children. Tell us that story, because it's a good one. Yeah, so um, originally it was uh, a, a concept called Dreamtime Detectives, where um, it was a group of, of you know, young boys um, learning about 
um, how the echidna got its spikes. Or, you know, um, and so what we did is we, we started to create this world um, and set it up for um, a broadcaster. Um, the, the biggest challenge for me was um, if you look at a lot of the traditional dreaming stories, they're, they're quite brutalistic and they, they are, um, you know, often end in death or, 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 or murder. And so, you know, when we were trying to shape it into these, you know, into these shows, we, you know, we can't have a kid go down to the shop and steal some chocolate and then comes home and gets killed by his parents. <laughs> <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't working, but it was... Um, but what it did, did show was that, you know, we couldn't stay true to the traditional stories and fit this format at the same time. So we slowly kept on ageing it up and ageing it up um, until the broadcasters suggested to us is to go to the far end of the, the scale. And, and once we found that, we knew exactly where our stories could sit. And just take us back a, a step further, which is for, for people who haven't seen Clever Man or understand the concept of it, that it's, it was your idea... Uh, that came from telling stories to your son about the needing an Aboriginal superhero. Yeah, so um, uh, as any good parent does, I'd like to force my likes onto my child and sort of, um, you know, we, I read a lot of comic books to him and realised, you know, one afternoon he was dressed up as a Ninja Turtle and I realised at that point that I needed to find a way to create a, a superhero that's connected to culture that he can connect to and he can feel empowered by um, to, you know, because he, he's competing, you know, his culture's competing against all these things out in the world. Um, and so that, that was kind of the, the start of the genesis. And once we started to, to really um, build on that, it, it just became stronger and stronger of why I was cre creating that show. And, um, you know, after the first season, you know, his, his thing right now... Um, you know, is he wants to grow up and be a wrestler. That's his thing. Um, but I walked into his room one day and he was um, wrestling this pillow <laughs> on the floor, um, had a mask on, but the theme music to Clever Man was playing on the background. And I asked him, well, what's going on? And he's like, well, you know, my, I'm a wrestler and this, this is my walkout music and my wrestler's name is the Clever Man. Oh, and so, brilliant you know, walkout music too. <laughs> so good. Um, and so, yeah, it was just essentially about, you know, what, what it showed me is that um, it doesn't matter of, of, of how it's structured, if, it's, if it was, you know, it was set up to empower him and it's done just that, you know, and, and, and that was just the biggest, you know, compliment that the show could ever get. Mm. Um, Diane, we had a fortuitous conversation about 158. Oh. Uh, just before we started this yeah. session. Um, and, well, it was interesting because uh, I was asking you about Forgetting Foster, which is the most recent publication, and you were saying that it was quite easy to get into the character of that you kind of inhabited seven-year-old Foster as a character. Yes. And I, 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 I was, that was a revelation. Um, how so? Well, how so? <laughs> um, well, uh, for those who don't know, Forgetting Foster, is, is, it's um, written from the perspective of a seven-year-old child whose um, father is going through early-onset Alzheimer's disease, and his, um, his ability to observe what's going on around him without the adults thinking that he's old enough to have a really uh, long sit-down discussion about what's actually going on in the family. Now, it was easy for me to inhabit that seven-year-old for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, I found in my own limited and shared role as a carer for someone who was suffering with dementia that 
um, when you're when you're forced into that sort of care mode and, and the language and the structure and the scaffolding of caring is all around you um, you feel so completely helpless. I, I felt, I should say, um, put eyes in my sentences and make myself really vulnerable. I felt very, very um, lost and, and vulnerable in that state. And so I could easily sort of, it does take you back to a place of childhood, of wanting someone to look after you while you're looking after the person who should be looking after you in the first place. It's that kind of dichotomy. Um, the other reason that I find it easy to write from the um, perspective of a child or a young adult is that I, I don't think I ever really fully left those parts of my life. There was, in, in one of the earlier um, panels, there was a discussion about, about um, remembering the past. You can only really remember, you know, your, 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 consciousness, your, body, your consciousness of your own body in the past. And, and these memories are triggered by this sort of, the, the formulative in, intensities, I think, was the word that either Paul or, or, or Wayne used. And that really resonated with me because I think that um, there are certain, certain events that stop us in our tracks and change the direction um, that we begin to develop as we move from, from small child to young adult and then further into adulthood. And I think that I really stopped on several of those and that they, they became seeds of belief about myself um, and I've always been able to tap those reservoirs more easily than um, I think what Elizabeth called adulting mm -hmm. in, the, in, the very, in the very first panel. Um, so it's always felt very natural to me to tell stories from the perspective of children and young adults. Yeah, and it was interesting because in, um, in an earlier conversation you shared with me the concept that the best writers of YA are those who've never recovered from childhood. Absolutely. And really, if people are honest, how many of us really recover from childhood in all seriousness? Um, I think that we become very good at, and we have to, become very good at playing roles and pretending and covering up and coping. But I think that, uh, and we have to, especially when we become parents ourselves and start screwing up our own kids. But I think that for me, the easiest and the most um, productive thing to do is to allow the uh, sort of the angsty, undeveloped, um, uh, uncomforted child and young adult that we all have in us to coexist with, with, the, with the adult that you have to be in order to pay your, your bills and your taxes and, and so forth. But, the, you know, there's a reason so many adults are alcoholic and on medication. And I think that um, childhood is not easy to recover from. And I don't necessarily want to recover from it. I want to let it coexist because it informs my writing. And I mean, this is how you started really speaking, Shaja, about your, your experience as a child and how it's kind of informed your writing. But do you have a sense that your, um, uh, I guess that those, those memories from childhood are something that you need to recover from as a, to, to sort of uh, in, like change, inform your writing? Uh, something like, uh, for example, uh, 
Because uh, in, in, in China, uh, when, when we were young at the elementary school or uh, middle school, we, have, we just got too much pressure from the teachers and the parents because they want to uh, coerce us to compete with other children. And uh, we, have to learn, uh, we have to learn so many uh, knowledges from the courses and we have to uh, pass uh, we have to pass all the exams and got good to got good uh, points in all of these exams and uh, we have to enter into the good uh, universities and so in this process sometimes our imagination our our curiosity as i just mentioned our courage about the new things just uh, uh, repressed from this this pressure so um, actually, when I became a, a, a assistant professor at the university, I also have to face my students. They are even younger than me, but uh, uh, now they are just uh, 18 or uh, 19 uh, age. And uh, when I uh, when I try to communicate with them about their problem in their uh, their study, uh, I just found it's very hard to inspire them to thinking something challenging. And uh, I think maybe, uh, sometimes I, I think maybe I can share some sci-fi stories with them and uh, throw them some challenging uh, questions to uh, let them to think about an, uh, uh, other possibilities about the future. And uh, sometimes I think maybe just uh, uh, encourage them to try to write something about themselves. It's another good way to encourage them to, to just uh, uh, pass over all, all of the uh, uh, limitations around them. So that's part of my thinking about this problem. Because mm. it, it sort of comes back to the idea of what, what the memory is as opposed to what the reality was in the sense that perhaps being a child is much more adult than we we remember it to be in the sense of the, the pressures. Yeah. Uh, but, and also because I, I reflected, Ryan, on, on the young people in Clever Man as being very serious. Like they had to take it, they were kind of burdened by responsibility. They weren't frivolous young people at all. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that's also a major part for being uh, a minority for you know, a child as well is, is that... Um, you are you are forced to sort of grow up a lot quicker than than you know you want to, or, or as the parents would want them to, um, you know. But you know, I have to I have to teach my son that you know he'll probably go to you know more funerals than weddings. You know, he will you know he will um, go to the you know down the streets with his with his cousins or, or friends and. They're going to be hassled a lot more, and so we wanted to reflect that in in, in the show. Um, and I think for me, and, and part of you know the way that I I parent, but also the way that you have a look at um, a lot of comic books, for example, is is they don't they don't pull any punches when it's coming to that sort of stuff. You know, like the the, the child will will adapt or, or they'll find the the meaning within the story or they'll find the thing that excites them most and the the, the later stuff will come, you know. That's why comics are, are, are so good as a child, but, you know, so many adults continue to read today is because they, they, they are telling real issues um, and it's just, it's, it's just shaped in, in, in a way that's uh, entertaining at the same time. Mm. 
Which brings me to, um, Diane, you, you shared with me about how your writing was once described as giving no hugs and no lessons and how that, how that resonated for you as in, that felt, felt right, felt like a, a right description. Um, yes, someone said that to me at once actually some, um, someone said it at a book launch the person who was launching the book said she comes from the Seinfeld school of writing no hugs no lessons um, at, which made me laugh but also I, I like that description because I don't um, I don't write the sort of fiction that is going to tie up into a nice neat bow at the end with a moral and a lesson for a couple of reasons I think that um, First of all, it weakens the authenticity of the young adult voice. Um, if you've got, if you're putting words into the mouths of young adults that are going to uh, give them a moral at the end of a tale, uh, give them some kind of resolution or redemption um, at the end of, of a of a crisis or, or, or some event um, in a story. It's kind of, it can be very condescending and I think young people can recognise and smell that condescension from, from quite a great distance when they're reading something. Um, I, I try to keep my, my young adult uh, characters and voices as authentic as possible by listening very carefully to the way they speak to each other and, and, and the way they approach things, which is vastly different to the way a lot of their parents and the adults in their life, lives approach things. So I, that doesn't mean to say that my stories are cruel or, or unkind or that there isn't um, compassion and empathy in, in the stories that I write, because there is. Um, but they're the sort of stories where I like to take a young adult on a journey and have them perhaps recognise themselves in some of the issues and angst that they face um, and perhaps offer them some uh, creative doors to go through in finding solutions to things for themselves rather than standing back as an adult and saying, well, if you did this, then this is the outcome and that is the result and that's how you get out of it. I don't want to give people maps. There are plenty of YA books out there that are very, very popular with grown-ups um, because they give a clear path and they're, they're teaching a very clear moral. And I think that we're in such ambiguity these days um, that uh, I, I think the religious right is getting enough help. So I, I, <laughs> I like to let young people work things out for themselves. But it's also um, extending that empathy beyond, um, I guess, a young person understanding what's going on in their own life to understanding what might be going, what they recognise happening in somebody else's life that they might not be able to understand in any way as well. Yeah, absolutely. I um, uh, had an email from a German um, girl who read um, the, the German translation of Creepy and Maud actually and she had seen there was a boy in her class who was pulling his hair and eating it and he would sit right at the back of the classroom and nobody ever talked to him nobody went near him um, and he he was bullied he they had all sorts of uh, dreadful um, nicknames for him and, and so forth and so on and um, she said to me that she walked up to him and just out of nowhere, she, she walked up to him and she said, I understand why you're doing that. And it started a conversation. Um, and he was a perfectly articulate boy, locked inside himself, self-harming for the reason a lot of young people self-harm. Um, but she wrote to thank me because she had never seen that represented in literature as a... Um, as a 
as a normal thing. It's not something to be feared or shunned or um, ostracised. Some people, um, you know, pull a bong. Some people cut. Some people pull out their own hair and eat it. There are all sorts of things that need to be represented in young adult literature. Um, yeah, the audience has gone quiet. Some people <laughs> I'm thinking. <laughs> um, these are the sorts of things that I like to explore. I get one email like that. Um, I think, okay, that's it. My, my job here is done. It's affected that one girl. Fine. Yeah. Shadja, what do you think or hope that your, your readers will take away from your representations of young people in your writing? From what? From where, where you've represented a young, young characters in your writing, what do you think that they'll, they'll take away? An, an empathic, a, a new kind of empathy perhaps, or some kind of learning from, from your young characters? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I want to take another example of my story. Uh, it's a story that uh, was right for uh, a group of children, and then I uh, finally I used a, a true child uh, as a, that's a main rule of my story. And uh, actually, the story is uh, based on experience about uh, many years ago. It's, uh, it was um, in 2007 when I visited, uh, traveled to Yunnan province, uh, a very remote uh, village elementary school as a volunteer teacher to teach the students there. Uh, I visited there with uh, some of my members. Uh, we, we, uh, we are a group, about seven members, and we stayed about uh, a week there. And uh, uh, it was, it's a lovely uh, village school, and uh, the students there, they just uh, feel so curious about uh, the people from outside, and uh, they, uh, they want to learn new things from us, so we just uh, uh, told them a, a lot of about different things to them, and uh, uh, and at, uh, in that village, I decided to I decided to to do a thing I have never done. That I decided to give them a science fiction lecture. Uh, it's my uh, it's my first science fiction lecture in my life, and uh, I tried to. Uh, give them some. Uh, the, the lecture's name is the, the travel in science fiction, and I tried to give them some them some concepts about how the Earth is, how global travel is, and how uh, what the space travel is like, or even time travel is. And for them, because uh, their problem is that uh, all all of, all of their life and their world is so limited in in such a small village, and uh, maybe in the future they have very little opportunities to to travel to other places of the world. So. Um, maybe for them to imagine to imagine about the space travel is very hard. And uh, after that, uh, after that, uh, after that period of time, I just uh, thinking about to write a science fiction story for them and uh, based on them, their true story. But that was too hard for me because in my imagination, uh, I kept thinking about that maybe in. Uh, in 10 years or 20 years later, uh, the, all, of, all of the world just uh, changed so quickly. We have new technologies, we have new smartphones or other magical things, but the life there just uh, stays still. Uh, they are still, 
living there and waiting for the teachers from outside the world to bring them some things. So after about maybe just a, about uh, eight years or seven years, uh, once when I watched a short video online uh, of a TED talk, it's from uh, Indian uh, people. Uh, his name is Sugat Mitchell, and uh, he 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 was the winner of the 2013 TED talk. He talked about he traveled around the world and uh, uh, used some computers to encourage the students in some uh, small village to uh, build some uh, starting groups themselves and uh, try to. Uh, learn things from the computers. Uh, so he called that as a, to build a cloud school, uh, to build a, a school in the cloud, and uh, which inspired me a lot. And then I began to try to create a story in a, in a totally different way. So in my story, it's in the near future, and uh, uh, we will have a new technology, uh, a device, uh, which, which is uh, like a smart cloud, but it's a literature cloud because you can, uh, it looks like cloud and it feels like cloud, and uh, uh, you can, it can change, change, change its forms, its, its uh, shape, and its color, and uh, which can be like used uh, as a screen to show videos and other things. And uh, you can communicate with uh, with the cloud, and that will be very cool. So some people think now we can make uh, big uh, big money from this new technology. But in my story, uh, there's a volunteer teacher. <laughs> he, uh, she actually is she. She brings this uh, smart to travel. Uh, to travel a long distance to visit a small village and uh, to encourage the students here to try to learn things from this cloud. So at the end of the story, you will see that uh, maybe in the future, the destination of those, uh, of those students will be changed by this cloud. So the story's name is uh, Waiting for the Cloud. Mm. <laughs> and uh, when, I was writing on the st uh, 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 when I was writing that story, I just uh, I was kept uh, watching the pictures of those students. I don't know how they are now. Maybe they just uh, grown up and uh, they have uh, a, a life that I cannot imagine anymore, but I still hope that uh, the technology can, uh, or, or, or something, uh, some new ideas can really help them to, help those children to imagine their their future. Mm. It's really interesting because it's a theme that I, I had a sense of in the, the last panel as well about how um, there's a, an instructive educative thing that's about firing uh, I guess firing the imagination of possibility in, in your storytelling but, and I do want to go back to, to asking about how you know imagination is fired, asking the panel of that but first um, Ryan just to ask you about what your kind of hope and intent is about what um, people will take away from, from the story of Clever Man. Um, particularly Coverman, let's say. I guess um, for me, I kind of see trauma being the, the the doorway to empathy in a way. It's, it's you, you you can't. A lot of people don't feel the same as someone else until they've gone through a, a certain event, and, and you you get a chance to um, use a character and let your audience go on a journey with them or feel for them or see what horrific events they do, that it may change their opinion 
after the, after the, they've finished watching the show or, or reading a book or um, you know in, in a way it's you know any form of storytelling is 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 teaching w with entertainment and 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 it's and it's getting a message across and for for me it's always about the hope for change or or to feel for someone else and that was kind of the message that we constantly kept on trying to push into the show and and finding you know each putting each character on on an event which was you know a, a hard a hard journey to follow but um you know seeing how certain people dealt dealt with those um traumatic events um hopefully made other you know the audience feel and and adjust their their sense of of, of life and and, and behaviour throughout you know the rest of their life and i mean you've tapped into this incredible wellspring of Dreamtime stories that are not just from your country either from all over australia um and there was uh, you've had some really interesting experiences going and collecting and getting permission to use those stories haven't you can you share yeah so um you know we I certainly didn't want to do the show unless um, all, all the elders were on board. Um, you know, we, we, we went out to the, the countries where these stories originated from and I, you know, I sat down with them, we went to the pub, we went and played cards, you know, I would spend, you know, a you know, week to two weeks in, in the community and then going back and forth and, and essentially sitting down with them and talking to them about the, the benefits that we have um, to to tell our stories in this sort of format you know like we we have had so many of our stories taken from us and you know changed uh, you know a lot of the the dreaming stories that are you know that are taught to kids aren't aren't traditionally ours you know they've they've, they've taken them and they've rewritten them and they've put some pretty pictures on and and you know this was a chance for us to to, to relive that and i would uh, the two examples that i would use to them is i you know i would say to them you know imagine if harry potter was black and they were like, they, you know, they were just like, what? You know, like they, 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 they got really excited. And, and then I would talk to them about, you know, there's, there's Lord of the Rings and, and people can speak Elvish and Klingon fluently. Uh, and and we, we have our language dying right in front of us. So here's an opportunity again to, you know, put our language into the show. And, you know, if the rest of the world starts to connect to it, they're going to want to know more about it, which means they're going to have to come to you for that, you know. And here's a chance to create, you know, dictionaries on, on our language and, and, and have, you know, more and more people in, interested in our, in our stuff, you know. We have the oldest culture in the world, but no one knows anything about us. And it was, it was you know, sitting with them and really understanding what they want and what, what I want is, is, is the same thing. And... Um, you know, once once they saw that, you know, they were so forthcoming with the stories and and um, taking it back to them and 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 you know showing it to the community there is, is, was amazing. Yeah. I haven't asked you this question, but speaking about language, um, did you use a particular Aboriginal language, or is that a kind of a, a just a no? No, that's a, that's a. Um, th there was two questions that I was asked before we we did the show. Is that um, the the um, the creatures that the hairy men um, could they be played by anyone? And I said, no, they can only be played by Aboriginal people. And the second question was, are we creating a language for the show? And I said, no, we will use the proper language. Um, we will just use it from the, uh, one of the communities who are a part of the show. And it was, again, it is about building um, acknowledgement of, of um, you know, our language, um, but also getting the community involved. So, you know, we, we would write scenes um, where, um, you know, they're all in English and then we'd have to send it off to the elders and they would, 
you know, there was a room just full of them just sitting there and, and translating that and they would record it and then we'd send it back and then I would have to sit in the room with, a, with another, um, someone who could speak the language and we'd train the actors to get the language right. Um, and, you know, that was a process that would go back and forth. And unfortunately it got cut from the, the, the first season, but um, the elders actually came up for a word for hyperdrive in in language you know and it was and you know this is the these are the the things that they were they they were really excited about you know and it's and it was about using this new way of telling our traditional stories that that kind of brought life to everything that you know the, these stories have been doing for you know 60,000 years mm. Yeah, it's in, I, I wonder about that because there's the, the element of what you were doing that just fires the imagination, not only, I guess, for the people who are working on the project, but also for us as an audience of conceptually something kind of, that we know in a sense, but that is with a refreshing new kind of aspect to the whole thing. Um, but at the same time, so incredibly painstaking what, what you had to go through to deliver that. Did, was it always something that were you always passionate about it or have there been times when you've just gone... Um, I think you know, it's, it doesn't matter what... Palm. Yeah, I think whatever... <laughs> like, if you don't feel like this is the worst idea that you're ever doing while you're, you're creating something, I, I, I think <laughs> that you're doing it the wrong way. I think you, you, get, you get to a point where you, you really question how, how long you can go through this journey. Like... I came up with Clever Man when my son was three and he turns 11 this year. So it was a long road to go through all the communities and to, to you know, as well as, as getting the concept, you know, of a broadcaster to put their hand up in this country for not only genre, you know, something that is, you know, fantasy, sci-fi, that they were scared to touch, but then on top of that say, well, you know, it's uh, black politics on top of that, and it made it even more scarier for them. So it's it's it is a, it was always a, a a long a long road, but then you you know you get to those moments where you see your kid wrestling a pillow, and you go, well that works. You know, it's to show that you know that's exactly what I wanted to get out of it. Just like the email that, you know, it's just that you just need that one thing that you you justifies what you were doing. Yeah. Have you had that, Shajar, at any point, some, some kind of sense of one, you know, one instance like the email, like, like, the, um, like Cohen fighting with the pillow, um, <laughs> that's really made you think, oh, yes, I'm, I'm having the impact that I, I hoped? Yeah, uh, uh, take Tom Tom's Tong summer as an example, just I mentioned uh, this morning. Uh, this story uh, was initially rejected by my editor. I don't know why, maybe because he's, Think, uh, he thought that story is a bit too childish, maybe. So he, he think it's not that like a, not not like a proper science fiction. So he rejected that story. So I have to uh, submitted that story to another magazine, uh, which is maybe not that not that popular. And uh, then uh, luckily the story was translated into English and uh, by Ken Liu and published on Clark's World. And uh, actually. Uh, when I, so when I got the uh, opportunity to go to the Worldcon to communicate with other uh, science fiction readers from other countries, uh, they told me they, they told me that they feel so touched by that story, and I said. Uh, well, I said it's a very Chinese story because it's a Chinese uh, story about Chinese family. I said, oh, I can understand uh, the feeling and I can understand what you want to see uh, through that uh, story. And uh, 
Actually, uh, in 2015, I even got uh, that story even got some votes uh, for the Hugo Award. Of course, it's, uh, it, it, it hadn't win the award, but I still think it's a big encouragement uh, for my writing. Mm. And that was one that your editor initially yeah. it actually turned down. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just, it just goes to show, doesn't it? You have to believe that you've, there, there's that core value in what you're doing and keep pressing forward with it. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask you a little, each of you, about imagination a little bit more, and partly because when you're writing for young people, I guess you've got to think about, um, you know, how you might, as you mentioned, Shaja, about, you know, sort of putting possibilities in their minds as well, but also, um, you know, where, where you can take them with storytelling that want, makes them want to hear the stories, because that's a challenge in its own right now, isn't it? Uh, you asking yes, me? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's, it is um, a huge challenge, especially because books are in competition now with so many other instant story methods of storytelling. There's so much going on, on online and, and gaming and all that sort of thing. But um, I, um, I, I always try and... It, for me, it comes back to authenticity, um, which we've spoken about before, that if um, my readers can recognise themselves or a part of themselves in what is happening with a character um, or with an event or a challenge in a character's life, anything that will um, draw them forward, not necessarily to, to teach them um, to teach them anything, but to teach them to think for themselves rather than giving solutions, teaching them to be uh, creative thinkers, teaching them to be critical. Um, and because uh, young adults are already um, anti-authoritarian and critical and, and, and all of those fabulous things that we lose the older and older, you know, that we get. I don't think you have. <laughs> Um, you saw me at the bar at lunchtime, didn't you? <laughs> because young adults uh, already uh, have that that need to not follow direction and to, to forge their own path, and we and we do through education and, and all sorts of other ways beat that out of them eventually. Um, that that they are more and more drawn to characters that are struggling with those same sorts of issues. And I think that it could be one of the reasons why um, there, is be there is a wider and wider adult readership for young adult um, literature as well. And I think part of that is, is that um, seed of belief that I talked about earlier, that I think that we all have this young adult in us somewhere that we, we do try to beat down but it's easier to coexist with and and there are more and more adults leaning toward reading um young adult literature and um so yeah i think that that's one of the one of the reasons why young adults are such a pleasure to write for and um but it's it's not easy again and i can't say it enough it's authenticity mm. Um, Shaja, th this is an interesting concept that I'd love to hear the Chinese perspective on, is about being anti-authoritarian, being rebellious, and about how that kind of fits in um, in terms of, you know, you know, culturally, is that something that, that young people are, are um, you know, sort of allow themselves to be, or do they see that with all of these pressures to perform from family and from teachers that it's, it's not really a path that can be taken? Yeah, uh, and... Uh Nothing, I think uh, sometimes I, I learn more from my students and from young, uh, even younger generations uh, because uh, 
I think it's, it's, it's very uh, important that uh, the generation as I uh, grew up in 1990s, we learn things from uh, a relatively traditional media like uh, television or textbooks or literature pieces. And now the younger generation, they got more diverse medi um, uh, media to get information and uh, which can inspire them uh, to, to do some new things. So sometimes, uh, uh, when I read some uh, like news report about the some young people who can uh, who, who had some ideas to resolve something, I always feel so encouraged by such stories. Uh, like uh, I, I, once I read a news, news report about uh, like uh, there's a young, very young uh, boy about uh, he's about uh, 17 years old and uh, his grandpa suffered from Alzheimer, so he the grandpa always uh, like uh, sneak out of the. Uh, out of the house in the midnight unconsciously. So this young people just invite, he invited, invented uh, a mini chips and sticks the chip uh, to the socks of this grandpa. So which can record all of uh, this data and uh, trace his grandpa's uh, 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 movement. And uh, uh, when, I got, when I saw this, I think uh, sometimes uh, we, we, we truly can learn some things from these young generations. And uh, another interesting example is, uh, is a shared, uh, is shared mobile, uh, the shared bike in China. Uh, maybe you know that Chi uh, Chinese people now just uh, they have more and more private car in their home, and uh, which caused. Uh, uh, even serious uh, environmental pollution problem. And uh, so just the last year, uh, a young student in Peking University, he develop, developed this business project of this shared bike, which means they, uh, he just built a lot of, uh, put a lot of bikes in the campus of Peking University and you can uh, use your smartphone to scan some uh, barcode and to unlock these spikes and uh, rent these spikes at a very low price. And uh, interesting thing is that business developed so so quick. So just in this year, you can see so many, many shared bikes in many cities, and which also caused a new problem because people just throw, just throw these bikes uh, all over the place, places, and uh, which even uh, caused even serious uh, traffic problems. And uh, so in very recent time, I, I saw an, another news report that some another uh, young students from Nanking University, they suggested some new method to help to control and to recognize this mobile, uh, this, this smart, uh, this shared bikes, uh, including new application on a smartphone and a new uh, vehicle to transport those uh, bikes. So I think sometimes when, uh, when we face such uh, problems, uh, some adults just know, uh, just know to complain about that. And uh, sometimes they feel, oh, okay, this world will be uh, even worse. So how can we do and so what? And uh, sometimes you feel, you can find that the young students, uh, the young child, they still have this imagination and a passion to try to uh, to try to change this, uh, the situation, and they have this belief that they can do such thing. Mm. 
And uh, I mean, I want to ask you, Ryan, in, in the context of, I guess, well, it's partly solution focused, I guess, the, the young people in Cleverman, but also the fact that the, you know, the, the, the rumblings in this in this story or these stories, because it's it's going to be never ending, um, uh, of of rebelliousness and anti-authoritarian, like what. The, the, the rumbling underneath that whole thing is, is really, I mean, it stayed with me for a long time after watching each episode because it's, it underpins the whole story, really, doesn't it? Yeah, I guess, I guess that, for, for me, is, is the, the sense of hope. You know, like, you, you're telling this story to, to hope for change. And, you know, you can't, you know, you can't just do that on your own and expect that it's going to work. It's, it's you know... It's it's something that we all have to be a part of to to affect these changes and and you know with with the with the show it is it's about oppression and so you know we have to work together as a as a, a as a group of people to to affect change within the system so it is anti you know um, establishment because of that because you know um, the forms of oppression are, are held by you know often by the governments or, or by the colonizers so it was a it was a big thing for us and it was and it was a big thing for the reason why we we use the dreaming stories to tell that is because it allowed the the show to be more universal and it wasn't just a black white issue then you know it was it was a human and a subhuman issue um and uh, we we're talking about this at lunch and unfortunately um oppression is universal that's the thing that so many people connect to on this on this story around the world um and so if we just made it about Aboriginal people in the government, a whole heap of people would have just switched off or, or didn't want to, felt they were being preached to. So, you know, we, we put them into, you know, um, the, these creatures and and made these creatures so so human um, that it, it allowed anyone to attach their, their beliefs into, into those characters. But there's an, I think there's an interesting additional element in that, in that I, I think that our experience of the reality to a large extent is that Aboriginal people are expected to have this incredible forbearance in, in their dealings with oppression. And that my sense in watching Clever Man is that what you're saying is, well, you know, there, there are other alternatives, you know, that we, we don't have to, you know, quietly, be patiently accept what's going on and keep going down the non-violent path. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think for me, when, when, you, when you watch the show... Um, um, there are uh, uh, we take it to the next level in, in the second series but there are three characters that all want change for their people but they all go about it their own way and they all fight with each other because of that um, but essentially uh, they are all wanting unity or they are wanting their, their language to be strong or they're wanting their people to be live side by side with each other and but it, it's it's not until you know you get a chance to to stop and listen to each other um will they ever see that change um and so again it's sort of it was it was a big thing about making sure that that each one of our characters um were essentially going in the same direction, but um, they're all making a different choice. And um, often it's, it's those choices um, that, you know, can, can, can shoot yourself in the foot or, or, or actually make change. Um, just one final question for the panel before we throw to questions from the audience, but how do you know what young people 
want in a story and how to get them to connect with stories. You talk, you talk to students a lot, don't you, Di? Um, I used to. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, di I did in, in the early days of my um, writing, do what they call the gigging thing of going around talking to students. I did that um, quite a bit. I also have an ear. Um, I listen. I eavesdrop. Um, I'm a bad date because I'll just sit there and with a completely blank look on my face and I'll be listening to that table and the people behind me and those young people over there. Um, so I, I listen, I pay attention, I read um, and I go with my gut and a, and a lot of the times the sorts of things that I... I decide to explore in my fiction are things that weren't available for me to read when I needed to read that. And I would have loved there to have been someone in fiction who was feeling what I was feeling at that age or who was going through what I was going through. Um, and then you, you trust a, a good editor to either say, That's, yeah, thumbs up or what the hell were you thinking? And, and you just, you know, sort of... Um, adjust accordingly. Mm. And Ryan, I, I said in the introduction that you said that you were very drawn to like, creating stories like the ones that you were drawn to as a young person. Is that what, what were they the superhero stories? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and well, do you still think young people resonate with those stories strongly? Um, yeah, I, I guess um, for, for me I couldn't, I couldn't read or write properly until I was 16 and it was, and it was um, comic books that got me into it and it was finding stories that uh, weren't presented to me by the schools or, or, or by my parents it was it was something that I felt like I could connect to um, you know it, first and foremost you know coming from the uh, the screen industry it, it needs to be entertaining and you need to to take um, this character on a journey um, that is going to excite the the reader or the or the audience, um, and I guess for for me it was the the benefit for for putting it into the superhero context is is what I said earlier. It, there's so many levels of of audience participation in that. You know, so you, the younger generation will look at it and just you know use their imagination that they could be that character, that they can fly, that they can stop a bus, you know, um, with their hands, or or, or that. Um, the the older generation are, are watching things like um, the X Men and seeing you know the persecution of the, the Jewish people or, or, or the segregation of, of black people through these characters. So it's 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 allow again it's allowing a platform that that allows the audience to to find a way in to connect with it themselves. Mm. Shadja, what what's your perspective on this? What do you feel like your audience wants from you? Uh, I think uh, the most important thing is, uh, like, uh, myself have to always keep this feeling of being a child. <laughs> and sometimes I, I got uh, criticism or judgment from my parents or some elder people that I, I'm on this age, but I'm still, still so immature. <laughs> uh, why you, why you not just stop to do some uh, such useless things and began to learn to how to be a grown up people? <laughs> For example, when I uh, started my own uh, science fiction writing course, my mom said, why you always 
want to do this. In China, is why you 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 own creative writing course. I, I told to my mother, no, now you can say it's not that like that. Uh, but I think uh, uh, sometimes uh, I myself also fears about growing old, uh, especially the psychological, uh, psychologically uh, growing old. So if uh, I want, I always give myself some opportunities to play like a child and think like a child. For example, when I give uh, when, when I give uh, critical creative writing lectures to my students, I encourage them start from uh, writing diary. So I said said maybe you you should try to learn to watch some like uh, butterflies or snails or plants like a child. That's a very first step, even though you, are, you think you are grown up, you, maybe you feel it's so childish to do such thing. And uh, myself also do a, a similar thing. I watch the snails in my compass and I write some diaries and I showed, showed the diaries to my students. And I said, okay, you, can, you see, you can do such thing. It's very simple and uh, it's interesting. <laughs> and you uh, will feel very enjoyable experience from such writing. So I think that's, uh, <laughs> it's another, uh, yeah, it's important. Yeah. Mm, to stay connected to that, yeah. Um, questions in the audience? I'm sorry, I haven't left a huge amount of time for that. I do apologise. Have we got our, yeah, roving mic is coming to whoever has a question. Thank you all very much. My question is for Shah. Um, what what does the Chinese market like to read the most? Is it science fiction or is it fantasy or? You mean the uh, publication situation? Yeah. Uh, actually, the science fiction publication now is not that good. <laughs> we uh, in the past 30 years, we only have one science fiction magazine and uh, it's just for short stories and uh, uh, it was once in 1990s it was once very popular but now because many uh, various reasons it's on the decline maybe just the people just stopped reading science fiction or they just stopped reading uh, <laughs> uh, stories and uh, 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 but uh, uh, that's one side of the, the of this uh, this question, and the other side is that now we have some uh, so-called the literature on on the internet or the literature online, and the people can publish uh, their they can publish their stories online and uh, got money from that. Uh, but the problem is, I think that form is not that uh, it's very not uh, not very suitable for science fiction writing because people maybe uh, want some easier stories to enjoy uh, in their spare time from that uh, kind of literature. So the fantasy stories, and uh, I think it's, it's not that kind of fantasy stories, not like the, for example, the Game of Thrones fantasy stories, uh, Chinese science fiction, uh, Chinese fantasy story, uh, like Xuan Huan Xiao Shuo, uh, just uh, you put some 
呃，神仙和妖怪 monsters and、uh, gods inside this story and the、uh, the conflict with each other and、uh, such story now is very popular and uh, uh, very important is many of these stories have、uh, have been adapted into TV series and、uh, even、uh, films and earn a lot of money, but the adaptation of science fiction is still on the way. <laughs> now we haven't any. Uh, successful exam of、uh, such science fiction adaptation. Yeah. So, so uh, sorry, is that you? It、uh, wasn't exactly what you. A second part to the、mm -hmm. question、okay. is: um, Is there a type of Australian literature that is popular in China? To be honest, I know very few about Australian. Sci-fi in China, and、uh, maybe partly because、uh, the, science, the, the Chinese science fiction fans they are too、uh, focused on like American science fiction, and that's a problem. They maybe they have very little in, in,、uh, interest in science fiction from other places, even from the English-spoken countries, and.、Uh, uh, that's why I think we should、uh, do much more.、Uh, Kind of communication with with these countries to exchange our science fiction altogether to、uh, translate more works into different languages. Is there one more question?、Um, uh, Shan, are you still in touch with your friend Chin? You know, you, you used to exchange stories with when you were a little girl. Which Jin?、Uh, do you, do you, was it Jin, the name of your friend? You were. Ah, Jin. Yeah, Jin.、Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Are you still in touch with her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's another <laughs> wonderful girl, because she、uh, used to major in architecture, and then she uh, changed. Uh, uh, then she 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 found some jobs in in the area of architecture, but then uh, but. Uh, Later, he quitted her jobs, and now she's like a toy designer,、uh, independent toy designer. And、uh, it's amazing that he finally、uh, developed her own business very successfully. And it's very,、uh, I think, such success is unimaginable by both our parents. <laughs> <laughs> Her her mother always cares about her, worries about her, just like my mom my mom worries about me. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And, and、uh, Ryan, what is the word for hyperlink in language?、Oh, I couldn't remember. Sorry,、oh. <laughs> I always wish I did. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, thank you so much, Diane Tuchel, Shaja, and Ryan Griffin. Creative Conversations, a podcast from the China Australia Writing Centre, is brought to you by Curtin University in Perth, Western Australia, and Fudan University in Shanghai. The podcast was produced by Glyn Greensmith and Paul Clifford. Matthew Liam Nicholson and Patrick Liddell composed the music, and we'd like to thank our centre's program director, Dr. Lucy Dugan. To keep up to date with the China Australia Writing Centre, you can follow us on social media. Or sign up to the newsletter on our website. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversations. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to our podcast, leave us a rating and a review, and feel free to contact us with your ideas and feedback, so we can keep this creative conversation vital and ongoing. Until next time.